it says on now. Oh, hey, hey, we're on. Wow. All right. If you turn it the right way, if all else fails, read the directions, right? I am a man. I have been prone not to read the directions. Any other men want to confess to that? Here we are in church, so you should tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. And our screen. We're supposed to have slides up there. There we go. There. Yeah. Psalm 34. Trust is part of life. We don't think about how much we trust folks. We trust the people that prepare our food to prepare it the right way so we don't end up sick, right? We trust other drivers on the road most of the time to uh, follow the rules and don't break any laws and signal and do things to keep themselves and us safe. We trust cashiers, if you still use cash, to uh, give us the right change or that they haven't added anything extra when they ring things up. We trust medical providers to give us the right diagnosis, the right medicines, and our pharmacists to make sure those medicines aren't counterindicated against one another. We trust our family. That's really where we learn trust until we don't, right? Until we're hurt, until we're lied to, until someone offends us, until someone sins against us, when we're cheated on, when we're mistreated, when we're abused, when we're used, then trust gets really hard. And people who haven't had their trust broken don't understand why we can't trust anymore. And that just makes it worse. Even with God, who we know we should trust, but when we feel like God himself has let us down or hurt us, trust. We're going to consider five reasons to trust God today, but I want to show you a couple slides by means of introduction first. Oh, I got to use my clicker. There you go. I forget. I'm so used to other people clicking for me. Yeah. So uh, if you haven't been there before, don't know what that is, that's El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. It's your park, so go see it in California. Uh, fly out to uh, Sacramento or San Francisco, drive about four hours. It's amazing. And even though that looks small, that's 3,000 feet up from the floor there. And um, maybe you should watch Free Solo about Alex Honnold's climb on that without any ropes. Crazy. Okay, but that's not what I wanted to talk to you about. The reason I had that is because I got my family there. Now, I don't know why I'm doing this in this picture. I mean, it's like a random selfie. My daughter, Mary Elizabeth, there in the front. Mary Elizabeth is a freshman at UNL. And um, so she is a nursing major. She's an honor student. She always takes care of everything. She's amazing. Um, and the biggest challenge about going to UNL so far is some boy named Jacob with a C. I don't know why it's Jacob with a C. Maybe there was Jacob with a K. Um, so if you know some kid named Jacob at UNL, tell him to leave my daughter alone. Okay? <laughs> He's like been coming on too strong, and she had to send him a strong email, and she had to talk to the leader at Christian Challenge. If you have any folks going to UNL, Christian Challenge, or Baptist Student Ministry, you should send them. In the back there is Seth, my son, who's a senior at UNL, a film studies major. He wants to write and direct movies. So, you know, the next year after he graduates... Um, like when his first famous movie comes out, you can say you knew his dad when, right? Um, Seth is known because his younger brother, you notice Seth's hair. About six months ago, Seth's just walking across the living room, and John Mark just out of the blue says, 
Hey Seth, Jesus called. He wants his hair back. <laughs> All right. Yeah, because John Mark and I wear our short. John Mark, the youngest, is uh, 15, and he's already like six foot two, and his waist is up to here. Uh, he just had homecoming. So the pants that Melanie got him last year for homecoming, she's like a couple weeks ago, hey, John Mark, you need to try on those pants. They look like capris, dude. I mean, they were short. We're like, oh, I hope we can let those out enough. Thankfully, they let them out just enough. So he is still growing. He's a soccer player. He loves Jesus, a good kid. And then my wife, Melanie, there. And then uh, there they are in Yosemite. If you ever get a chance to go to Yosemite National Park and you are able to ride a bicycle, rent the bicycles. Even though there are these massive cliffs and mountains all around you, it's flat in the valley and you can take a nice little ride on old cruiser bikes. And so we did that this summer as a family. So there we are, the posse, the biker gang, right? Yeah. And then Melanie. My wife, Melanie, I love Melanie. She was going to be here today. She just couldn't make it. I'm sorry to say someday you'll get to meet her. We've been married 25 years. And you know that lady is a picture of God's grace if she'd been married to me for 25 years. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Y'all don't know me. You should amen better than that. Melanie is a nurse practitioner and a clinic manager at Express Care in North Lincoln. So if you're ever in North Lincoln, you need urgent care. North 27th, go see my wife and her staff. They'll take good care of you. And then, uh, yeah, so my job now is I work for the Heartland Church Network, so I work for you. Um, for 17 years, matter of fact, it was 17 years ago today, I preached in view of a call at Southview Baptist Church in Lincoln. God called us there, and so we pastored there 16 and a half years, and for the last six months, I've been in this role with the Heartland Church Network. Some of you know Mark Elliott, my predecessor. Um, so about a year ago, people started saying, hey, Mark's retiring. You ought to take his place. I'm like, mm, I'm not Mark Elliott. And it wasn't until Mark said to me, you don't have to be Mark Elliott. You just have to be Aaron Householder. You can do this job. I'm like, ah. Oh. So what do we do? We are a network of churches. You see our little image there with all the churches. And our church, what we as a network do is we start, connect, and support churches. So we help new churches get planted or replanted, kind of like what you're at right now is a replant. We help connect ministry leaders and churches to one another for support. And then, of course, we support through pastors. And so my job then is to serve churches. When I got this job, people said to me, so wait, now you're like, you were a pastor of a church, so now you're going to be like the bishop or the cardinal or something in charge of all these churches? I'm like, no, exactly the opposite. Flip that pyramid upside down. Because our Southern Baptist polity is this, the churches that are independent and autonomous that cooperate together are in charge. And my job, I'm the bottom of the pyramid, my job is to serve churches to help you in any of these ways, starting, connecting, or supporting churches. And so it's my privilege to do that. If you want to know more about HCN, get up your phone. Come on, come on, somebody, please. Just to humor me with the QR code there, our link tree. You can subscribe to our email. Um, you can get on our Facebook, our Instagram, or uh, a website or anything like that about HCN. So, and there I am if you want to email me further. And that is from Tunnel View looking at the whole Yosemite Valley. You see Half Dome back there in the middle? You've maybe seen Half Dome before. So we got to get on with our sermon though. We want to talk about five reasons to trust God. And if you haven't opened your Bibles already to Psalm 34, I would invite you to do that. And we want to ask five questions to consider in reference to trusting God. 
Now, your Bible may have a heading in it that says something like a Psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech or Achish. And if your Bible has a heading in it there, I want to go back and read you that story. Now, what was happening in David's life, at least a snippet of that story, is he was running from King Saul. Remember, King Saul had gone absolutely crazy. And rather than treating David as he should have treated David, he was out to kill him, spreading rumors about David and everything like that. So David is on the run. And it says in 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 and following, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath, but his servants of Achish, so I'm in 1 Samuel 21, we'll get to Psalm 34 in a minute, said to him, is it this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing in, about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors and the gates and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at this man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madman that you bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come to my house? David, when recounting this later, in writing a psalm, which we have in our Bibles is Psalm 34, talks about how we can trust God in the midst of challenges. And there's a couple things that are striking to me about this, because I don't know about you, if I've ever acted foolishly, or made a fool of myself, most of the time I just as soon hide that. Mm -hmm. Not talk about it anymore. Because it's a little embarrassing. And I'm a yahoo, but I got a little bit of pride. And I don't want people to think any less of me. But David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, rather than hiding this incident, rather than acting like this incident didn't happen, wrote it down. And for those of you that read Hebrew, I don't anymore. I took a class in seminary a long time ago. There's 22 verses here, 22 verses, the Hebrew consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. Each one of these verses starts, the first word in it starts with that consonant. So it's a mnemonic device. So if you are somebody who speaks Hebrew even today or way back then when David wrote it, he wrote it that way so that it would be easier for people to remember. So again, rather than hiding his shame, hiding his foolishness, he's saying, I want you to learn from me. I want you to see when in one of the lowest, scariest parts of my life, how God showed up and spoke to me. Before we go any further, I want us to take a time out and pray. God, our Father, we come before you this morning, and I don't know the condition of the hearts, the minds, the lives of these brothers and sisters that are gathered here today, but I know mine. I know my questions, I know my hurts, I know my anxieties, my pains, my fears, but I also know where you have spoken truth and where you've strengthened my faith and given me courage and given me hope and provided me joy. So God, I look forward to opening your word today with these brothers and sisters that they might be ministered to by your words written so long ago by King David but more so by your Holy Spirit who's living and active even today. That whatever it is, you would speak to their hearts and they would make a change, a commitment, a confession, whatever you desire, that they might be more like Jesus, we pray.
And Father, we pray that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice this morning or on this recording that they're listening later that has never trusted Jesus as their personal Savior, Lord, that maybe today they'd say, okay, that's it. I'm done being foolish. I'm done running away. I'm done with my excuses. I know that God loves me, and I know that Jesus died for me, and I'm going to commit myself to follow him. So, Father, we pray that you would move in this place by your power and for your glory in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, I like to use slides because I like to write things down. I like an outline. I don't know about you guys. If you write notes, if you have a journal, I think journaling's a good habit to have as a follower of Jesus. You might not journal every day, but every now and then you need to write something down. And sermon notes is a good thing to write down because God can then bring them back to you. But what I want to do is walk through Psalm 34 with us. And I want to talk about through the various um, paragraphs, basically, of the psalm, five different ways we can trust God. And the first one is we can trust God because God deserves glory. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. It says in Psalm 34, verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Now, if you know that modern worship song, I'm not going to sing it because I'm not that, that good of a singer. You know, His praise will ever be on my lips. Yeah, that's as much as I should sing. If my wife was here, she'd be cringing right now. Don't sing, don't sing. But here's the thing. Verse 1 the first two words in my NIV, it says, I will extol the Lord. That I will is actually as strong a tense as you can get in the Hebrew. He's saying, I am resolved. I am committed. I will absolutely positively praise the Lord. At all times, he's saying in every situation, no matter what's going on, in good things and in bad things, in bright days and in sad days, he says, I'm never going to be done praising God. I don't know about you, I'm pretty quick to forget this. Things go wrong, and I'm like, ugly word can come out of my mouth. I know blessing and cursing shouldn't come out of the same mouth, but I'm confessing to you from the time I was a teenager, and I cursed because it was the cool thing to do. Those words are still there, and they still come out sometimes. But why do they come out? Because of my anger, because of my frustration, because things aren't going my way. Anybody with me? But what does David say? His praise will always be on my lips. Go on to verse 2. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Boast? About what? Boast about the reality of God. Boast about the goodness of God. Boast about His relationship with us. Boast about our experience with Him. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. The CSB actually says, let the afflicted hear and be humble. The humble are generally put off by the boasting of others, but this boasting is different. This boasting is because of God's goodness, because of God's greatness, because of God's love. And so it's a different sort of boasting that should draw people to God. Look at verse 3. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Oh, magnify the Lord. Now, hey, I forgot earlier. I promised my wife every time I preach somewhere and that she's not with me. I'm going to take a picture of everybody. So everybody smile and wave at Melanie. All right. Hi, Melanie. Okay. Now, this camera on my phone has a zoom feature, right? I can take my fingers and go like this. Whoop. I can zoom in. Tim, I am really zoomed in on you right now. Now, let me ask you guys a question, scientific question. Let's see if you can get it. You're not in school. I just zoomed in on Tim. Is he any larger? I mean, you're the same size. You didn't grow. 
Miss Deborah would be like, whoa, look at that. He got bigger. Pastor Aaron, how did you do that? No, I just used this device electronically to zoom him in, to magnify him. He's the same size. What's it say there? Glorify or magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. Whether we praise God or not, whether we magnify God or not, whether we glorify God or not, God's still God. He is still sovereign. He is still the biggest, most powerful force in the entire universe. He created the universe, everything we know. He sustains the universe, and He redeems those that come to Him. So our magnification doesn't change the size of God. We can't do that. But it changes His size in our life, doesn't it? So when we come together and we worship here, which is an important function of believers in Jesus and is a central function of the church to grow disciples, one reason we sing praises, one reason we pray, one reason we give praise reports is to magnify God, to remind us in the midst of life that gets us down and hurts us and breaks our trust that God's still God and He's still bigger than anything that we're facing. I don't know who needs to hear that today, but I did. God is infinite. And he can't be made greater, but his name can be greater in our lives and in the lives of others we know. So I have a question for us to consider there. Because it says in that psalm at verse 3 that the afflicted will rejoice, that others will hear, those struggling. When I magnify God, it's not just for me, it's for others gathered with me. So who is it that needs to hear you praise God? Not just the people in this room, but what about people in your life? People that need to hear your testimony of God's goodness in your life. Need to hear your story of God's faithfulness in your life. Need to hear about how God has provided for you. So that when you speak words of testimony, when you speak words, you bring glory and you magnify God in their life. Have you ever heard it this way? You may be the only Jesus some people ever know. You may be the only Bible some people ever read. It's your job as a believer in Jesus to magnify him, to glorify him by sharing his goodness and telling his story. So the first thing we need to apply from our first passage of Scripture here when we think about trusting God is to praise him. Let's move on to our second point. God deserves our glory, but the second reason God deserves our trust is because He answers prayers. Can I get an amen? amen. God answers prayers. I love the fact that you do prayer requests and you do praises. Don't forget to report the answers. I mean, that was one of those things. We have a prayer chain at my church, Southview. I'm still a member there in Lincoln. And um, you know, we continually remind people, when you tell us to pray for somebody or something, then tell us when the answer comes. You know, yes, it was praying for their surgery. Well, tell us they came through okay. Six weeks later, tell us they recovered okay. Praying for somebody to trust Jesus as their Savior. Definitely tell us what's going on there. Praying for God to change a broken heart. Let us know. We need to hear those. God answers prayers. Let's go on in our passage of Scripture. Psalm 34, verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. It's sad that David had to use the ruse of being a crazy man in this situation. I don't know what he was thinking, if that was a God thing or just a David thing. But his prayer was genuine. Amen. Even though he might have been doing something that came from his own mind and the fear of his own heart, the commitment that he had to God was real. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Mm -hmm. 
fears, those are specific experiences, that, but they can also be nonspecific things. And fear is so many times irrational or non-rational, but so is faith. I've said before that doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt many times can be faith seeking an answer, mm -hmm. faith asking questions, faith that is genuine, that just doesn't yet know because God hasn't provided the answer. Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear that keeps us frozen, even though God has said, if you go, I will provide. God has said, if you step, I will lead. But we go, mm, I can't do that, God. But what does Jesus, or Jesus, excuse me, David say? I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Do we learn something from David here? Yes. Next time you're in fear, what do you do? Magnify God, seek him. He'll deliver you from your fears. Let's go on. Verse six or five, excuse me. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The most radiant thing I have ever seen. Now, I'm older than you think I am. I'm 52. And by God's grace, I've got to see all sorts of amazing things. But here's the absolute most radiant thing I've ever seen. My wife's home church, Spring Hill Baptist Church in Ringgold, Louisiana, is a church out in the rolling uh, countryside, sandy soil, big, tall pine trees. And they're literally called Spring Hill Baptist Church because there is a spring in the hill that, you know, the water just comes out of. And that's where they got a baptistry down the hill. They bricked it off and it's real nice. It's like a little prayer garden down there. Their church building is about this wide, but it's got windows all down the side that let light in. And on this particular day, there were pretty uh, flowers on each of those windows and flowers down the sides of the aisle. And you can get the picture of what I'm painting here, right? And flowers all back up in the choir loft behind me and pretty music playing. And I'm standing at the front of that church like I'm standing here now and the back doors open. And wow. When my then wife-to-be very shortly was standing at the back of that beautiful church, I swear to you, I levitated a little bit. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I think I did. I got a couple inches taller, and it wasn't because I was staying on my tiptoes. Is My radiant bride was at the back on her daddy's arm with a smile bigger than you've ever seen, coming down to marry me, a yahoo like me, marrying a gal like that. That's God's grace right there, okay? Radiant. What does he say? Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. I wish that was true of me. Based on my sinfulness, based on my disobedience, I get some shame sometimes. But let's go on. We're going to learn some more. Verse 6. The poor man called and the Lord heard him. Notice that's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Lord God, not the Lord Jesus. Let's just get this straight. He saved him out of all of his trouble. Now, when he said poor man there, he's speaking of himself because this is testimonial based on what happened. Now, he, he is poor. He's not king yet. He's running around destitute, not sure where he's going to get his meal, not sure where he's going to sleep, not sure if he's going to be alive the next morning. The poor man called him and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all of his troubles. Consider the position of prayer in the economy of grace. Prayer is the means by which we access God's grace. Prayer is when we lift up our hands to God and say, God, I'm not enough. Can you feel me? And God's going, you're not supposed to be enough. 
I put you right here so I could do this for you. So you could see my glory and you can know my goodness and you could experience my love. Thank you for asking, child. Prayer is the pathway to find God's mercy. Prayer is the request to engage God's sovereignty. What's it say? He saved me out of all my troubles. Now, you and I know we won't be saved from all troubles until we get to glory because this world is messed up. And we know that we still struggle with sin. And so sometimes it's us that causes the mess in this world. But let's go on in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. This is a different type of fear here. This isn't the fear of man. This isn't the fear of circumstances. This is the fear of God. It's a special Hebrew word, Yare El. So it's Yare, fear with El, like Elohim, Lord. And he's saying, I feared God differently than I feared everything else in my life, differently even than I feared King Achish that I acted crazy about because I thought he would put me to death. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. David is saying, God had my back. What was I worried about? And what's it say? Verse 7b, and he delivers them. God alone is the deliverer. Friends, there are times when we can get ourselves out of jams. And sometimes God intends us to get us out of jams. But most often God wants to get us out of that jam. Mm -hmm. And so our question in applying our second point is, what am I asking from God? Right now in your life, what have you written down in your prayer journal? Something that you've been praying because it's been hard and it's been long and you haven't got the answer yet. And if God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. And you keep praying and you keep knocking and you keep asking because the, God's word says so. What's breaking your heart that you need God to do for you that no one else can do, not even you? We've talked about trusting God because he deserves glory. We talked about trusting God because he answers our prayers. Let's move on to verse 8. We can trust God because God provides for seekers. Now, I use a broad word like seekers because I mean those who know him that are seeking him, but also those that don't know him and are seeking him. David is writing as somebody who is in relationship with God. But let's go on in verse 8 and see. David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see, he says. He says, well, i got to stop and talk about that one a minute. Anybody here ever had a banh mi sandwich? A Vietnamese sandwich. You have, yes. Have you been to Bonwich in Lincoln? Um, no. North 27th Street and Vine. Okay. Next time you're in Lincoln, you want a very tasty sandwich, go to Bonwich, and you'll just thank me for it, okay? So it's French bread that's crusty on the outside, sweet and fluffy on the inside, and they put different uh, oriental kind of flavored meats on the inside, pork, beef, chicken, whatever you want, you know, from here, there, wherever, and it is so good. I should have put a picture up here, shouldn't I? <laughs> and then you get a bubble tea with it, but I don't do the legit bubble tea. They do these fruit smoothies. It's like got real cream and real fruit puree in it. And then you get the popping bobas down on the bottom, you know, so that you get the sweet and the creamy with the savory and the crunchy. Oh, it's amazing. It'll cost you about nine bucks to get both, but it's worth it, okay? Now that I got you hungry, <laughs> go back to our scripture. Taste and see the Lord is good. 
God wants us to know him in such a way by experience. Just like I have tasted that sandwich and I told you about that sandwich, God wants you to experience him that same way. That you have a personal experience with him. It's not just that you heard Aaron, that guy from Lincoln who told us to go to that store. What was the name of that sandwich again? Bon Me, B-A-H-N-M-I, Bon Me. But that you have a personal experience with God. Let's go on, verse 9. The fear of the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Amen to that promise. It's a declaration that we prevail in prayer that God's going to provide for us. It says, verse 10, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's a promise, which begs the question in your life and my life right now, right? Is there a good thing in my life that I'm lacking right now? Has God not kept his promises? Or maybe it's something that I think I need that I don't really need and God hasn't provided. Or because God's wanting me to draw him into a closer relationship with him, he hasn't provided it yet. It's still on the way because I'm not ready. It's not ready. Have faith, prevail in prayer, persevere, friends, is what I would say. Let's go on in verse 11. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, now David's saying, if you're reading this, you've got to pay attention. He's going to drop some wisdom on us here. Verse 12, he says, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So he's changed the posture in which he's teaching here. He's not so much reporting what has happened and giving us examples from that. He's now saying directly to all of us that are reading it and listening to it and the Holy Spirit speaking to us, this is how you live a good and godly life. This is how God is going to provide for you. You've got to do a little bit yourself. You've got to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. You know where that comes from? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. David is saying to us in other ways, guard your heart. Walk with God in such a way and seek personal holiness in such a way that you're guarding your heart so that the right words come out of your mouth, no matter the circumstance. Here's a simple question for you. When you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? Somebody, come on, y'all. Lemon juice, right? If you squeeze a lemon and orange juice comes out, we need to talk. I don't know what you did there. It's like a magic trick or something like that. But when you squeeze a lemon, lemon juice comes out. When you squeeze you, what comes out? Does God's goodness come out? Or does a little honoriness or sinfulness come out? We all struggle with those sort of things, but David is saying this is how we know we serve him. He says, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. We need to move on to our question there for this third point. And that's how do I live in worship of God? We call what we're doing right now a worship service. But friends, worship is how we live 24-7, 365. It is everything we do. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is one working for men, not or one working for the Lord, not for men. Because you know it's the Lord Christ you're serving, it says in Colossians 3. That all we do is worship. So how do we live and worship to God? What is it about my life that is demonstrating this godliness, this goodness, this holiness to others? I've got a word I coined years ago, and I'm going to write a book about it, so nobody else write the book first, right? Here's my word, otherish. 
Let me explain it to you. It's the opposite of selfish. Selfish is natural. It's easy for us to be selfish. You don't have to teach a toddler to be selfish. You have to teach them to be otherish. Selfish is natural and is sinful. Otherish is supernatural and it is godly. And here's how otherish works. It's God-powered. It only comes from God. It's other-focused. It's targeted on others, hence the name otherish, and it's self-sacrificing. God calls us to be otherish, to live a life of worship to Him. So God deserves glory because He answers our prayers, because He provides for seekers. Let's move on to our fourth point here, reason we trust God. We trust God because God embraces the broken. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's now. Maybe this is the reason you needed to be here today is these verses right here. Look at what it says in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Okay, Lord, even if I'm not unrighteous, we'll remember, or even if I am unrighteous, well, remember, your righteousness is not from you. It's imputed from Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, God's eyes are on you is what this is saying. His ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory from the earth. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. I want you to think for me a minute. What's the best hug you ever got? The best hug you ever got. Now, you're going to have to think about this a little bit. Because, you know, if you're like me, I don't know, maybe you're not a hugger. And if you're not, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but even people who aren't huggers, there's been some time in your life when you needed it, you were broken, and somebody gave you a hug. Have you had one of those hugs where you were so broken that you just wept on someone's shoulder? And they just held you and it didn't get awkward because they loved you? God loves you that way. God calls you to himself. And sometimes he uses others to give you a physical hug. But in a spiritual way, through his word, in prayer, and in your worship to him privately, even in your worship here with a group of folks, God gives you that sort of hug. And he draws you to himself. Read verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. David wrote in Psalm 51, 17, another one of his psalms that's really confessional because that's when he had sinned against God and Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, killed. I mean, all that terrible mess, right? And what does he say in Psalm 51, 17? He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. David says to us, when we come to God humbly, no matter what we've done, no matter how we've sinned, when we come to God broken because we can't fix it, we don't know how, when we come to God powerless because we can't, we're not supposed to, that's when God is with us. That's when God's going to carry us. That's when God's going to hold us. God embraces the broken. And that's one more reason for us to trust him in our worst moments. He's there. Broken hearts may think God is far away when he's really most near. 
When striving on my own, I only need to look to God. Let's get our question there. What causes me to cry out to God? I will confess that I think sometimes our lives are too comfortable. As Americans, you know, we can pay our bills. And even though there's inflation and even though there's things to complain about, you know, maybe our boss is a jerk or something like that. Maybe, you know, we don't have everything we want. We've got our needs. And we don't often get in situations that have us in such hurt and pain and question that we have to cry out to God. Have you considered that sometimes God allows you to get in those situations? I mean, I don't know that God causes anybody to get something like cancer, but I have a friend who's 10 years younger than me that just had a big honking tumor removed from his tibia and had a cadaver bone grafted to it, and they're waiting to find out if it was cancer, that tumor they took out. And he's going to have six months he's not supposed to put weight on that thing because it was like his whole lower leg, right? I don't think that God caused that to happen, my friend. Cancer happens. Car wrecks happen. But God can sure allow that, can he? And God can use that for his good. And what is it in your life right now that has got you worried, got you concerned, got you anxious, that you need faith, that you need to turn to God so that God can show up and do what only God can do? What makes you cry out to God? So we've had four points so far. God deserves our glory. God answers our prayers. God provides for seekers. God embraces the broken. Let's move on to our fifth and final point. We trust God because God delivers the righteous. All these pictures, by the way, are unsplash.com. They're freely licensed pictures, so I'm not stealing them from anybody. So if you need pictures for a PowerPoint, unsplash.com. And I love this one because I thought, okay, you know, you, you search a word and delivery showed food delivery. I was like, that's not the type of delivery I'm talking about. <laughs> so then I thought, how do I feel when God has delivered me? I thought, I feel like a kid being carried by his dad. And I put in the search engine, father with son. Boom, this came up. I was like, perfect. Because the dad is happy and the little boy is happy. And imagine how you feel when you've gone through something that you don't have, know how, you don't know where, you don't know when, you just know you don't have the power, you don't have the ability, you can't change it, you're brokenhearted, but God, your father comes through, and then it's like you're a little kid up on his shoulders. Yeah, man, life is good. I have a family in our church in Lincoln, um, Richard and Jessica, and they just had their third child, Esri, uh, the other day. And Melanie and I had the privilege to go up to the hospital and visit with them. We took them really good ice cream, 402 Creamery in Lincoln. If you like ice cream, go there as well. Um, but it wasn't about bringing them the ice cream. It was about visiting with them. I did premarital counseling for them. I married them. I prayed with them when they were infertile. And now God's blessed them with three kids, right? And to be able to have that privilege to hold that baby and then to cry as, well, try not to cry, as I prayed a prayer of dedication over that baby with that mama and daddy that I've known for 15 years that I've been through all this with. God delivers the righteous. Let's go on in verse 19. It says, A righteous man may have many troubles, 
I kind of want to go back and say, hey, wait a second, Bible translator. Wait a second, David. Wait a second, Holy Spirit that inspired David. When my Bible says a righteous man may have many troubles, I want to say will. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a matter of may. This is like when my wife was about to deliver our first child, Seth, you saw with the Jesus hair, right? Melanie says to the nurse, when Aaron faints, she didn't say if he faints. She said, when Aaron faints, you know, do whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I ate my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I made it through. I didn't faint in any of our three childbirths. She did all the hard work. I just had to stand there and cheer, right? But I want to say about this scripture, a righteous man will have many troubles. Maybe your Bible uses a different word there. But look at the next part. But the Lord delivers him from them all. Can I get an Amen. No matter your troubles, God's grace is greater. No matter your problems, God's wisdom is more wondrous. No matter your anxieties, God's power is more miraculous. God is with you in those trials. Look at verse 9. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now, Part of us, we go, well, that's kind of a weird thing to put in there. But think about David's context. Go back 4,000 years. What would happen to you if you got a bone broken then? There wasn't a hospital to set that sucker. There wasn't pain medicine to get you through that. There wasn't x-rays to know. And if it was a compound fracture and poking out through your skin, you're dead, man, because of infection. So when David says, God protects you and not a bone will be broken, he's saying he's going to take care of all your physical life because that's about the worst physical thing they knew that could happen. They didn't understand cancer and heart attacks and strokes and stuff like that. Verse 21, evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. Okay, God is, or David's saying on behalf of the Holy Spirit here that God's going to take care of the bad folks in your life, not your job to judge them and take care of them. Verse 22, the Lord redeems his servants. No one will condemn, no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Faith is the mark of the redeemed. No matter how small you think your faith is, no matter how little faith you think you got, what did Jesus say? Faith the size of a mustard seed? Have you seen a mustard seed before? They really are small. Smaller than that. But I don't, I don't think I can hold my fingers the right small of a mustard seed. What do we got to do about that? We need to ask ourselves this question. Where do I need God's rescue? In your life today, sitting right here, listening to this guy you don't know, who Pastor James was nice enough to invite to preach. Where do you need God to rescue you? It might be a small thing. It might be a huge thing. It might be a burden you have carried for decades of unforgiveness, of hurt, where somebody sinned against you. But God hasn't been able to move in your life yet like he wants to because you won't ask his forgiveness or forgive that person that offended or sinned against you, even though they might have done something grievous and terrible. Now, it might be something small. It may be that God has called you to speak to a neighbor, share the gospel with them, and you're anxious or afraid or fearful, and you haven't yet for some reason, but you've yet to obey. There's something in every one of our lives that God needs to rescue us from today. There's a hurt 
There's a habit. There's a hang-up. There's a besetting sin. There's a troublesome person. There's a difficult situation. We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to confess and repent our lack of prayer, our lack of humility, our lack of brokenness, our lack of forgiveness, our lack of faith, our lack of courage. But we need to remember this. Don't let the devil get you down on what you haven't done yet. Because God loves you. And there's some things you're not supposed to do on your own. Where you can't, God can. And that's exactly where you're supposed to be. You need to remember these four things. Conclusion. Conclusion. God loves you. He loves you so much He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to die for you. That if you would believe in Him, He will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness and give you the free gift of eternal salvation. You need to remember that God is trustworthy even though this world and your own mind seeks to twist that up and make you think that God is bad and God is out to get you and God doesn't love you and God doesn't care. He does love you and He is gracious and you can trust Him. You can trust Him right now. So whatever it is you need to let go of today, that's between you and Him. Now, you can visit with me. You can visit with Pastor James. You can visit with a brother or sister in the congregation and ask them to pray for you. And I pray that you will. But it's really between you and the Lord. I want us to pray right now. God, our Father, we're so humbled by this scripture we've considered today that David, in the midst of his mess, was humble enough to write in such a way to be transparent with us, but to teach us. So God, we thank you, and this sounds weird, for the trials. We thank you for the things that challenge our faith. We even thank you for the things that hurt us. Because in those things, they cause us to turn to you to trust you and to exercise our faith in you that you might show yourself strong and loving and faithful. So God, our Father, I pray for those who may be here that haven't trusted Jesus as their Savior that today somebody would say, Yes, Lord. I admit that I've sinned I believe Jesus is God's Son, and I confess Him as my Savior and Lord. And then I pray for those of us here today that are followers of Jesus, but something's just been in our way that we need to confess, that we need to repent of, that we need to give to you that you might act and change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.